We watch the REITs. They're our customers. They're not the big bad wolves and coming in and slashing rates in markets. As a matter of fact, we love it when the REITs come to town because they may offer lower rates in the beginning, but they're going to be pushing rates for the rest of the market and bringing the value of all of our facilities up in the meantime. This is the Self Storage Podcast, where we share the knowledge and skills from the industry's leading investors, developers, and operators to help you launch and grow your self storage business. Your host, Scott Myers, over the past 16 years, has acquired developed, converted, and syndicated over 2 million square feet of self-storage nationwide with the help of his incredible team at selfstorageinvesting.com, who has helped thousands of people achieve greatness in self-storage. Hello, everyone, and welcome back to the Self-Storage Podcast. I am your host, Scott Myers, and today what we're going to be talking about are the seven things self-storage investors must do to prepare for the coming recession. Whether you believe that we're in a recession right now, or whether you believe that it is coming or whether you're just burying your head in the sand and assuming this market is going to run for the next seven to 10 years, well, that is hope and hope is not a strategy. And so you do need to strategize and you do need to prepare for the upcoming recession or the downturn, whatever you want to call it. We are right now in a different environment and the market is changing and major shifts in the market mean that we need to shift gears. And so that's what we're going to be talking about today is how to prepare for a recession and how to recession-proof your business. There's a lot of talk about self-storage and how it is a recession-proof asset class, a recession-proof sector in our economy. And I would say that there is nothing that is recession-proof. We all feel the pain in a downturn, whether it be a correction, a downturn, a recession, and uh, nothing is immune to it and no sector of the economy is immune to it. So I would say that we are recession resistant, but here are the ways that I've seen and the ways that I feel will allow you to minimize the effects of the recession. The good news is, hopefully, you're in self-storage already. And this is an asset class that normally does very well in a recession because it is needs-based, it is demand-based. And when there is a downturn in the economy, just like we saw during the pandemic, well, that creates a need for storage businesses may be struggling or like they were in the pandemic, they were shut down and business owners had to put their inventory somewhere and they had to put their extra furniture and office belongings or their manufacturing machines and anything else, equipment, tools, whatever, you name it for the business that had to go into storage until things turned back around again. We saw that many people lost their jobs. If they didn't lose a business, they lost a job and they were forced to maybe downsize and go into a smaller home or apartment or move back home. And that creates a demand for storage. And those are the things that we see typically in a recession. I should know I've been through, this will be my third. I've been through two and there are a lot of lessons to learn to bulletproof your business, but also there are opportunities for us as investors. And so that's what I'm going to be talking about and touching on at the back end of our session together today as well. So let's talk about, first of all, well, I'm going to cover What did I learn from the last recession? Where are we in the cycle right now in the economic cycle? What is different this time around? Every recession creates opportunities and looks a little bit different than the last. And so we're going to talk about this one and where we are in the cycle and the 10 things to do if you want to survive and thrive. So yes, I've added a few bonus ones here as well. So let's take a look at, if you will, the last recession. 1.4 back in 2008, 2010, 1.4 million businesses closed. Thankfully, mine wasn't one of them. The National REIT, N-A-R-E-I-T, tracks all equities and they track all real estate asset classes that are publicly traded. And the NARIT equity index lost 40% in 2008, while the self-storage REITs themselves singled out returned 5% during the Great Recession. Be honest, 
Anybody that's out there right now, if you're willing, who didn't lose money? Those of you that were in business at that time, raise your hand or answer to yourself. You know, Did you lose money? If so, how did you lose money and why? And we're going to come back to those questions. Just put a placeholder there in your own mind. So let's talk about the real estate microeconomics and what's at play in any in the four different phases of the real estate cycle. So we have generally regarded by economists, uh, we have four phases, recovery, expansion, hyper supply, and a recession. So let's cover those briefly just so that we can understand where we're at. In recovery, the characteristics are typically high unemployment, decreased consumption, decreased investment in buildings, land, factories, and machines. The price of land is low. Interest rates are low. Vacancy rates, well, decreasing as rent is low and promoting growth. That's typically what we see in, yes, a recovery phase. In an expansion phase, unemployment drops. The price of land is rising due to lack of inventory. Land speculation means that there's a whole lot of investors who overpay for land relative to current market value. And during expansion, well, the boom is on and there's a whole lot of folks that that are out there gunslingers that are out there making some crazy investments and in many cases overpaying for those as well. The next phase is hypersupply. And the first sign of trouble in a hypersupply economy is we see an increase in unsold inventory and we're starting to see some of that right now. Vacancy rates rise and rents begin to fall. And I would say that we are experiencing that in the self-storage sector right now. Wise developers stop introducing new inventory. And (laughs) there's an asterisk beside that because that never happens. We just don't see that, at least in our industry. And that includes myself because in many cases, I mean, if we are being realistic here and prudent, the yield in the marketplace right now typically still lies in development as long as you get the land without overpaying for the land and as long as our construction costs don't go up dramatically and our capital stack and structures put together correctly. However, there still are some folks out there that have cash. There's a new entrance into the self-storage sector that feel as if they can do no wrong and they have money that they've raised and they have to deploy it no matter what. And so that is typically what we see. So in terms of the first sign of trouble, that's typically what we're seeing. I would say they were in that phase right now. Second sign of a recession is their indicators of trouble is when occupancy falls below the long-term averages. Eh, We're there in some markets, but not all of them. New construction stops or slows drastically. We're still a little ways off from that, even with the high interest rate environment that we're in right now. Projects that were started during the hypersupply phase are finished and new projects are grounded. And again, I think this is just around the corner. And the surplus of inventory leads to decrease in prices and occupancy. And we haven't seen that necessarily in prices, but occupancy certainly, and revenues plummet. And again, we're not there. So if I were to consult my crystal ball, which my crystal ball is broken or in the shop, can't seem to find it, I would say that we are in that phase right now where we are straddling the line between hypersupply and heading into a recession. Third signs of a recession, third sign or third indicators of trouble is when interest rates increase. Well, we've seen that. The Fed has to fight increased prices throughout the economy during a hyper expansion mode. And so that's what they do. And that's what they've been doing. Occupancy drops rapidly. Rents decrease. Fixed costs increase. Foreclosures follow. And then the value buying begins. Well, that's the signs of a recession or that's a sign of the cycle of a recession as well, because I think that straddles also a number of months during the middle of recession. So the factors to watch out for to understand where we're at right now is to determine where we're at and what to do is increases in unsold inventory. If there's projects out there and we're seeing this across the board where there are for the first time, I'd say beginning, say two months ago, this podcast is coming out in May. About two months ago, we began to see some 
properties that were listed within the brokerage community that are now seeing some decreases in prices, some days on market a little bit long and actually price reductions. I think part of that is seller expectations. There's a little bit of a hangover from this bull run that we've had and sellers expectations typically lag behind the true market indicators in terms of interest rates and cap rates. So for that reason, I think there were some optimistic listing prices that were out in the marketplace feeling as if they were going to be trading at prices where we were back in 2021. Vacancy rates rise and rents begin to fall rental rates began to fall. Yeah, I'd say we're seeing that just a little bit. Occupancy is falling below the long-term averages, as we mentioned before. New construction stops, increase in interest rates, and then global unrest. Well, let's add that then to the mix. Global unrest causes a lack of confidence in the investing community, a lack of confidence then reflected in stock market and many recessions and global unrest. And I would say that we definitely have been experiencing that in the past several years. We have the threat of, there's ongoing wars in internationally right now, and the threat of other wars upcoming. And so as we see the world watch this, there's a fair amount of uncertainty and fear. And anytime there's some fear in the economy in general, then there's fear in the stock market. People begin to pull back. They begin to save their money, keep their money, their investments in cash. And a pullback from the stock market begins to create, it's a snowball effect, create some more consumer unrest and lack of confidence. And we could be one war away. We could be one more significant event in terms of global unrest away from bringing everybody to the place where they're pulling all the cash back home, taking it even from banks, as we've seen some banks failing recently as well. Not necessarily runs on the bank, but in the old-fashioned days, but we've seen some runs on the banks and several that are in trouble right now. So where would you say, let's boil this all down here, now that we're 10 minutes in, roughly, where are we in the cycle? Well, since 1800, yes, real estate cycles run according to an 18-year cycle. Not a 7 to 10, like we typically see between recessions, but we're talking a full cycle. The exceptions to that were during World World War II, and then the interest rate spike of 1979, which was caused by a number of factors. Call it a perfect storm. Perfect means uh, great, flawless. This is a perfect storm in terms of uh, all the factors that went into that interest rate spike of 1979. Basically, all the things we just talked about multiplied by 10x. So our last down cycle was in 2008. The next down cycle, if you do the math, then is, well, 18 years later, 2024. Expansion phase is underway. And again, I would say that is definitely where we are, is between the expansion phase and heading into a recession, and there will be occasional slowdowns and or bumps in the road in terms of a development. The real estate industry should, however, encounter a long period of expansion. And so does that mean through the end of 2024? And is that longer than where we're at right now? Well, in terms of where you think we are in the cycle, that may be longer than what other economists are predicting. And I'm not stating that I am in that realm or making any projections. And long is subjective. A long time away um, could be the end of this year or through 2024 or 25. We just don't know at this point. We keep our ear to the ground. I'm talking with a couple of economists, and I'm following about three or four others that are fairly well adept at predicting where the economy is heading and have been fairly accurate. These are folks older, than, much older than I, much grayer and much wiser that have been through these cycles, and they can see a little further down the road than I have. And it is anybody's guess at this point. We see folks that think that we're going to be out of this in 18 months as per the usual, which means by the end of 2024. And there's others that think that we're in for a long road in three or four years of high interest rates and that a war will begin over in uh, Asia, and that is going to be prolonged, and that is going to cause a recession to be deep and long as well. And again, nobody really knows um, just yet because there are so many factors and variables that swing in either direction and throw in an election year coming up in uh, 2024 as well to boot. And that adds just one more variable to the mix. So what does that mean for us in self-storage? How is storage affected? 
Well, again, self-storage involves need-based spending, which is both good and bad. Some loans with recourse, meaning personal guarantees, could be called due. And some of these banks, when they're bringing their money back home as well, they may be looking for ways to be able to call a loan due. They have the ability to in many cases. And if there's a hiccup in the loan commitments or stipulations, they could call some of these loan due. And because, again, those who have the gold make the rules. Some partnerships might be strained. I'd say they will be strained. You'll see that. That's what a recession brings out. And many times a strained partnership means that the, well, the kids, suffer from that. And the kids in this case is the property in terms of net operating income, because while the partners are fighting, the kids neglected, the facility is neglected. At the end of the day, you need to surround yourself with good data and good people to make these decisions based upon the cycles is really what it boils down to. So again, my crystal ball is broken. I consider myself one of those good people to assist you in making decisions because well, of the information that I'm sharing with you right now. We've got a lot of folks out there watching the markets and I've been through this a time or two. This will be my third recession that I'm heading into. And again, as I look to other folks that have been in this longer than I have in terms of economists and those that follow real estate in general, let alone self-storage, If you're already investing in self-storage and you're looking to grow and scale your business, then you need to join the self-storage mastermind. We formed the industry's first mastermind back in 2010, and we stacked it with the one percenters across the country who specialize in acquisitions, development, and syndication. This exclusive group of storage rock stars meets in once a quarter in private settings to combine business and VIP experiences that you won't find at any of the trade shows in Las Vegas or at the other copycat masterminds. So if you're looking to become part of an advanced community that openly shares best business practices, along with the largest pipeline of off-market deals and access to the top private equity resources, then you need to be in the room. So if you think you're a fit, then go to thestoragemastermind.com to apply. That's thestoragemastermind.com, and we'll see you on the inside. We all have the ability, and they do even more so than I, that have been through a couple other recessions, to look further down the road and understand and see the similarities and plot the path to profitability and projecting the timelines in which we are going to be both in and out of this recession. So with that, we're seeing if we boil back down to the individual markets and where we're focused and many folks in the self-storage industry are focused, if we begin to look at some of the dynamics in the markets that we operate in, we've got strong job growth in Dallas and Orlando, where a number of facilities and developments are underway and a lot of activity, including ourselves. We are seeing income growth, which supports uh, rent hikes, although there is a little bit of a leveling off. We are not seeing the COVID type 13% month over month rental rate increases, but nevertheless, we are still seeing absorption in the marketplace with these new projects that just come on recently and that are still coming on that are infill locations from pent-up demand. And in many instances, even in markets that still have pent-up demand and a lack of development since the last recession, we're seeing U-Haul rental prices growing as they escalating in terms of the one-ways from the north to the south. If you rented a U-Haul truck in Phoenix and drove it to Chicago, it would cost you $1,196, roughly. If you're renting that same U-Haul truck and going from Chicago to Phoenix, it's twenty. So almost $1,000 more to go in that direction. Same thing uh, for Nashville. If you're going um, from DC to Nashville, it's $1,441. If you're going from Nashville to Washington, DC, $578. New York down to Orlando, $2,872. And if you can get a truck and go, well, you will be able to get a truck in Orlando. It's tough to get one from New York, but taking a truck from Orlando to New York, $723. So a 3X. So we're seeing the growth still in the South where people are migrating to as well. If we head on over to the West Coast, by comparison, if you're going from San Francisco, excuse me, from Seattle to San Francisco, 
$754. From San Francisco to Seattle, $2,372. And from Las Vegas over to San Fran, $153. From San Fran over to Las Vegas, $1,877. Holy moly. That is where people are heading to. And for quality of life for many other reasons, but the overall migration we're seeing is going to the South. So what are we seeing in terms of the REITs and what are they doing? You know, much of what we do, our business model is again, learning from economists, learning from others who have paved the path and gone before us and following the REITs. We watch the REITs. We sell to them. They're our customers. They're not the big bad wolves and coming in and slashing rates in markets. As a matter of fact, we love it when the REITs come to town because they may offer lower rates in the beginning, but they're going to be pushing rates for the rest of the market and bringing the value of all of our facilities up in the meantime. So where are they developing? Where are they seeing the trends? They've been through this a time or two. The heads, the advisors, the boards within the REITs, they know what's coming. They've seen it in the past. And so what we're seeing is a number of facilities being built and a growth in self-storage by the REITs. Northwest, not so much, about 6%. Central part of the country, about 7% growth. Midwest, same, about 7%. And the Northeast, about 9%. That is in terms of the growth that they're seeing and developments that are coming up behind it. California, only 9%, much lower than it's been in the past. That isn't necessarily the climate, but is basically the living climate. It's a little difficult to do business and live in California right now. But you come next door to the Southwest and you come into Nevada, you come into Arizona, you come into Colorado, and we're seeing 15% growth. So double that that we've seen in the northern parts of the country. Texas also at 15%, Florida alone at 12%, and then the entire Southeast, 24%. So the Sunshine States and Belt, we're seeing a massive amount of growth by the REITs in those markets which are following the population. So the other opportunity I see in in addition to focusing on the South and the Sunshine States is we're seeing more high density suburban living. So builders and developers both want it. There's less risk in a desirable location to be able to build in those areas and they have to be careful in where they are choosing these projects uh, right now with the increase in construction costs and interest rates. They're putting on more homes per acre, which means higher revenue per acre for the builder. Cities want it as well. It's an efficient use of land. Packing more people into a smaller footprint is always better for a city because it means more taxable income with more residents per acre and then also utilizing the services of the city and the services of the other private sector businesses around it, like the restaurants and like hotels, as well as the dry cleaners and uh, everything else that supports it to bring more tax revenue to the city. We're also seeing that there is a closer proximity to everything when you see high density suburban living where people want to have experiences. They're close to their employment. It's a better affordability and a desirable location because it's smaller and concentrated. And the building product companies are adapting to this as well. They're addressing privacy They are addressing light now, meaning if you've got a big old box and and you're putting in a number of units, many times it's tough to get windows and light into the center of these buildings. And so they are adapting to that as well. And then also efficiency and how we operate in those dwellings, as well as the efficiency in, in erecting them and building them. We're seeing smaller single family cottage homes that seems to be the craze now. And cottage home is now taking on a new meaning and it is more chic. There are many of these cottage homes that are being built in places. Uh, we've seen a lot of these in Arizona, where we go, where two of our kids are going to college. In Surprise, Arizona, number of developments anywhere from 650 to about 1,100 square feet. High density, but very efficient, open to lighting. And of course, in Arizona, lots of open spaces as well. We're also seeing young singles now are buying more row townhomes. There's a number of projects out there by a number of different builders that some in California, they're designed to be 
well, both attainable and uh, charming to attract folks because these uh, generations that are coming up behind the boomers, they aren't necessarily into home ownership. They want to be mobile. They want to be flexible. They travel about. Their job takes them that way. And sometimes they quit their job and travel for a few months at a time and then pick up another job again or go back to work again. And they are very, very mobile as well. So that means it's easier with smaller homes, with square footage and all the right places to accommodate folks that are living a minimalist lifestyle and that are going to travel and not stick around for a while. Small yards, covered decks to be out in all seasons um, so the folks can uh, just enjoy being outside more. And that's across the country, not just in the Sunbelt states as well. We're seeing more townhomes and duplex units that are two to seven unit buildings being built. We saw a lot of this in the 60s and 70s, and now they're coming back in style again. The shared wall type homes and condos, anywhere from... 1,500 square foot to roughly 1,600 square foot in some of these projects that are all row townhomes. They don't vary too much. And anywhere from, we're seeing it in the north, depending upon the outdoor living space, there's a little more of a variance from about 1,100 square feet to 1,600 square feet. But almost all of those are with two car garages as opposed to the one car garage style we've seen in the past. And also another new term, if you will, that is being coined is urban co-living, which is growing in popularity. And that simply means that there's an affordable way to live that allows for lots of common spaces where you have a small courtyard where many people are able to go out and have coffee or have a meal with folks and their neighbors are literally five to 10 yards away. Their doors open and face each other. So in terms of the suburbs where we want a room, we want to be able to stretch out. We don't want to see our neighbors and we'll plant trees strategically at our deck and by our windows so we don't have to see into another person's home or in their backyard. But instead, this urban co-living and these designs and these housing developments are just the opposite. And everybody is uh, almost intrusive, but in a good way, everybody's doing life together. They're co-living. As a result of all this and packing more people into smaller plots of land, we're seeing lot sizes that are declining quite a bit. Median lot size of new homes sold back in 2000 was about 9,400 square feet. And now as of um, you know the last time we tracked this, you know, roughly trending about the same since about 2018 through 2019, between 8,500 and 8,600 square feet. So it doesn't sound like much, but if you pencil that out and extrapolate across the entire country, it's quite a bit more housing going in on a smaller footprint of land. We're also seeing a decline in the size of single family homes. So just taking single family homes as an asset class all on its own, we're seeing a 5% decline in the square footage since 2015 as builders are now pivoting to the entry level segment and making it more affordable for them as well. So what does all this mean? How are we using this data? Well, first of all, in terms of a recession, there's I'm not a prepper by any stretch, but I'm a prepper when it comes to my business and I'm preparing for the recession. And we are scaling not to get bigger, but we're scaling to get better, which means that right now is a time as we're heading into this recession is a good time to be able to hire good lieutenants that are out there that may be out of work other places. But also you're going to need to be more efficient and get more work out of fewer people. So you need to hire the rock stars now and maybe get rid of some folks that are underperforming. We are growing our private equity partner base because we recognize and realize I saw the folks around us in 2008 and 2009, they mopped up. They did extremely well and bought a lot of troubled assets or created joint ventures to help people along that were struggling. And so we are growing our private equity partner base because nothing is done without the cash, the equity, the ability to be able to transact fast and step into a situation with cash is key to winning in this game as we head into this next cycle or this next phase. We're growing our lender base and being opportunistic and meaning we 
are not just looking at conversions. We are not just looking at development, ground up development and just acquisitions. We're looking at portfolios, different packages. We're looking at portfolios of properties that are at certificate of occupancy. So somebody's taken on the risk, the debt risk, the lease up and construction risk. We are taking the ball and running it down the field from there. And other ways to be able to create loans and becoming a lender and investing in, not as a passive investor, but doing joint ventures coming into projects. Not necessarily because they're trouble, but just because things have changed. And so recognizing through all of this that we have to be opportunistic and we have to be flexible because in the words, the infamous theologian, Mike Tyson, life is all about plan B and everybody has a plan until they get punched in the mouth. And so I don't want for any of you to get punched in the mouth. And so now we're going to cover the 10 things you must do to prepare for a recession. And number one, it's all about the cash. You got to generate cash now, period. Number two is knowing at your monthly break-even point. Number three is know when it's happening and to get ahead of it. Four is to right-size your business. And don't worry, I'm going to go into detail on these. Number five is to renegotiate to survive and then flourish. And number six is to focus on sales. So how are we using this data? Well, what I'm going to do in part two in our Next Style podcast is I've developed a top 10 prepper list. And that means I'm not a prepper by heart. I don't get too overly concerned, but I am prepared and I am prepping for the recession and I'm making sure that my business is a recession proof. And so I am prepping for that. And what does that mean? It means that I'm scaling to get better versus bigger, meaning hiring the right people. We're growing our private equity partner base. We're growing our lender base to be able to take advantage of the opportunities that are coming so that we don't get caught. Hoping things are going to get better, hoping that we'll make through it, hoping we've made good decisions in the past. Hope is not a strategy. Life is all about plan B. And in the great words of Mr. Mike Tyson, the great theologian. Life is all about plan B and everybody has a plan until they get punched in the mouth. And uh, what I don't want for you is to get uh, punched in the mouth. So now that we've covered where we're at in the cycle and some of the things you need to be aware of and the opportunities that are going to be presented to us, part two, I'm going to come back and we're going to talk about the 10 things you must do to prepare for a recession. All right. So with that, it's been an honor and a pleasure to spend time with you as well. And we will catch you on the next podcast episode, 10 things you must do to prepare for the recession. All right. Thanks, gang. We'll see you then. Hey, gang. Wait, three things before you leave. First, don't forget to subscribe to the Self Storage Podcast and turn on your notifications so you never miss another episode. And while you're there, please leave us a five-star review if you like the show. Second, be sure to share your favorite episodes and more via Instagram and don't forget to tag us. And lastly, head to the links in the show description and hit the following subscribe button on Twitter and Facebook to get a front row seat as we grow and scale our business and bring you along with us. Take care.